Please join me as we read the passage on which today's teaching is based. It comes from Jonah chapter 4, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Could I not be concerned about that great city? And this is God's word. Jonah, he's a prophet. He was called to preach to the wicked Assyrians in their capital city of Nineveh. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go to that great city but if you join us last week, that's not what Jonah does. Instead, he, he literally fled onto a ship in the opposite direction, and there he encounters a storm. He's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a fish. And in chapter 2, he prays. He prays in the belly of this fish. Now he's looking to God, and he's brought onto dry land, and he starts to preach to Nineveh. And Jonah's fear is not that these people in Nineveh would repent, that they would not repent, rather. He feared that they would repent. He, didn't, he wasn't afraid that these people would, uh, would not listen to his sermon and not turn to God. He was actually afraid that they would listen to his sermon and that they would turn to God. And so he's thinking, where is the justice of God? I mean, do you know these people? Where is the justice? One thing we learned from Jonah is that God cannot be something that we created to satisfy our needs. Because a God that we created would never be able to do the things that he did with Jonah. A God that we created could never change us, could never challenge us, could never save us. Jonah is uh, he's falling apart. He's, he's just completely falling apart, coming undone. But God is so gentle, and he starts calling back here in this passage. And there's four things we're going to learn, four very quick things. And from these lessons, we're going to learn the heart of God, the burden of God, and why even Metro here is planted in the city. We're going to learn the diagnosis of our anger, two, the root cause of our anger, three, the cure for our anger, and four, the application, one practical application at least in the book of Jonah. First, we're going to look at the diagnosis. Jonah, he preaches this very harsh sermon. Basically, what he's saying is, stop your evil, cut it out. 
because the entire city is going to be overturned. And they stop. They do. I mean, presidents, mayors, they would dream to have this type of, of, uh, of commitment by their great cities to end evil. And the story really should have ended there, but it doesn't end there because verse 1 here in this passage, Jonah is greatly displeased and exceedingly angry. In Hebrew, that phrase basically connotes Jonah viewed as if God had done a great evil to him. Why? Verse, verse two, I knew you'd be this way. That's basically what he's saying. I knew you'd be this way. I knew you'd be loving. I knew you'd be forgiving. I knew you'd be gracious. I knew you'd be compassionate. But I don't agree with that. He's actually quoting from Exodus, which is written, that passage written in your call to worship. And he basically says, I know that you are a gracious God. I know that you are a patient God. I know that you are a just God. But what about the justice? You, always, you also promised to be just. You said you punished the wicked which means none of us should be paying the price. They should be paying the cost. I mean, you can either be just or you can be gracious. You can't be both. And he really was struggling that moment to reconcile the two. How can a God be just and at the same time gracious? How can a God be just and at the same time compassionate? Somebody's got to pay. If you're just, none of it pays. If you're gracious, no one pays. Somebody's got to pay. And you told me to go to preach against this city, and I did. What's the diagnosis of Jonah's anger? Anger is a deeply, it's basically deeply rooted in questioning, usually questioning the justice of God or the love of God. Either God is not just or God is not kind. God is not loving. In anyone's anger, there is this undercurrent of self-righteousness against God that basically says, I actually, I know better. Why wouldn't you have answered my prayer? Why wouldn't you have done this for me? I mean, or I would never have let this happen in the world or to my family or to myself. That's the beginning of that relational distance. That's why Jonah fled. You see, it's why Jonah ran. Verse five, Jonah, what he does is he sits down east of the city. And whenever you see that somebody going east or sitting east uh, and looking out or sitting east and being distant, basically that, that represents distance from God. For example, Adam and Eve, after they had committed their rebellion against God, after they had chosen to live according to their own desires and not follow and obey God himself, they were driven east of Eden. Basically, they were distant from God. There's this relational distance. And Jonah, you got to remember, he's a, he's a prophet. He was called by God. So how could he be like this? And the answer is, think about this. The answer is, Anytime, well, I'll say it this way, a flawed application of God's love in your life or a flawed application of God's justice in your life is really the diagnosis for just about every spiritual pathology in our life, even the smallest things, even the most incremental things. Because what we're asking is, why wouldn't God give this to me? Or why would God let this happen to me? Either he's not just, or he's not loving because I deserve better. I deserve more. In the fish, now think about this. In the fish, we didn't go into that, this passage. Jonah's crying out. And what he really cries out, he says, you are a gracious God. But then he goes to see Nineveh and he says, God has done an evil here. Why? What's the root cause? That's the second point. Something inevitably has become more important to Jonah than God himself. And that thing, has, he's been kept from that thing. 
verse 3, Jonah says, take away my life. Take away my life. It's better for me to die. Chapter 2, he's praising God. In chapter 4, he wants to die. How do you explain that? Jonah is so dissatisfied with the outcome of what he's seeing happening in Nineveh. People are hearing his sermon, and they're falling to the ground, and they're praying, and they're repentant, and, and, and he knows God is near, and that doesn't help. And that teaches us what? That you can't always come to God just because you feel fulfilled, because a lot of times you're not going to feel fulfilled. In verse 2, Jonah looks to God, and he says, I know that you are abounding in love. That Hebrew word is hesed. He's saying, I knew you'd be forgiving. I knew you'd be sparing and gracious. Your love never fails. In fact, there's no human that can demonstrate the kind of love that you have for your people. But you can't possibly mean those people. Not those people. How do you know? Jonah says, take away my life. It's better for me to die. I'd rather die than live. Whenever you hear somebody saying, I'd rather die right now, what they're saying is this. Whatever it was that gave my life meaning, whatever it was that gave my life worth in that moment has been taken away from me. And so I'd rather just die because my life has lost meaning. My life has lost purpose. And we don't do that. There are people who suffer and in such a way where they feel that way because of some major tragedy that's happened in their life or something has been withheld from them that's so deeply desired. And that happens. But we do that in an incremental way because every single time our anger flares up, what are we saying? In that moment, I deserved something else. I had a picture of the way my day was going to go. And this was not a part of that plan. You see? And so we lift our fist soulfully at God. That's what we're doing. We're, just so, we're so dissatisfied. What gave my life meaning, what gave my life worth has been taken away from me, and so it's better for me to die. It feels as if I, I've lost my life anyway. You get that? Jonah, he's, he's looking at the only source of true meaning in life, the only source of life, and he tells him, I have no reason to live. Why? Because something else has become more valuable than his relationship with God. Something has become more valuable than God himself. Something has become more valuable and the fact that God is present and near and in his life, something else has taken the place of God. For us, it could be a relationship that takes the place of God. It could be your health. You don't even realize how much you crave and need and desire uh, your youthfulness or your good looks or your health until you start to get sick in a chronic way, until you start to uh, look at yourself and, and you're dissatisfied with the way you, your place in life or the way you look or where you are in life, your career, your job. Maybe you look around at your family and you had a particular plan for how your family life was going to be and God has ruined everything. God has ruined everything from the get-go. You see that? These are all good things, a good family, a nice home, living in a nice neighborhood, a great education, having some status in your life or wealth. These are all good things. But once they become more important than God, they become a root of spiritual collapse. You start to, that corrosion leads you only on paths of anxiety and despair. That's what happens. Today, there are people in our world who say they worship God. They say they worship God, but what they're really saying is, I will serve God until he stops meeting my needs. I will serve God as long as he meets my needs. You're really dealing with a negotiation with God. You're really dealing with God as like your employee. See, You're going to God for things, but you're not going to God for God. 
And so Jonah, he preaches, and then he heads out east. You gotta see what's going on here. He, preach, he preaches the sermon, and the entire city falls to the ground. In fact, the king steps down from his throne and says, we all need to repent. And Jonah, he's so angry. He goes out east, and he, and he stands out outside the city, and he waits to see what happens because he's saying, now, is God gonna be gracious and let them go, or is God going to be just and basically bring hellfire onto this, onto this city? And what happens? The scorching wind starts to come to him, and he feels his heat. So Jonah's starting to get the picture. I'm getting the heat. And so he wants to die. He's so angry. But then this vine starts to grow out, and it goes out behind him and gives him shade. And so Jonah says, oh, God hasn't abandoned me. God does care for me. This is a sign of relief. He's giving me shade. He's giving me relief. And so he's happy. God must see me. God must hear me. God, he's actually going to listen to me. But then what happens is a worm comes out and chews on the vine and kills the vine. The vine withers. And Jonah says in his heart, God has left me. I'm so angry I could die. That's the root cause. So you have the diagnosis, this undercurrent of disagreement and anger towards God in the midst of your circumstances, incrementally or in, in large form. And then you have this root cause because essentially what we're doing is we've been coming to God as really a means to be, be fulfilled. And so we're so dissatisfied um, because the, our meaning and worth have been taken away from us. What's the cure? This vine grows over Jonah. The people are repenting below and they're seeing this. And Jonah is so angry because he wants them to pay. He wants them to die but they don't die. And so he wants to die. Where's God in all this? God is so patient. You know, God is so patient. Most of this dialogue between God and Jonah consists of God asking Jonah questions. Is it because God doesn't know what Jonah's thinking? Is it because God doesn't know and he's really curious to hear what Jonah would say? No, he wants Jonah to see. He's counseling Jonah. He's asking mostly questions. He never brings the hammer. Not once in this passage do you see him bring the hammer, not on Jonah, not on the Assyrians, and they all deserve it. He just reasons with Jonah, calls him back, shares his burden, shares his heart for the city. The next time you're angry, you need to know that God, in the midst of that flare-up, you are just out of control, irrational. God is right there reasoning with you. Let go of that anger. Let go of the rival gods that are competing with God for attention. Let go of that pride. God is present, he's listening, he's patient. He asks Jonah twice, do you have any right to be angry? And the second time, Jonah says, I do. I do have a right to be angry. Now think about this. Chapter two, Jonah got the fish and he's praying. And, And really the sum of that prayer is, now I get it. Now I get it. It's all about grace. I didn't deserve this. I don't deserve my life. God is a gracious God. I don't deserve to live. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then he walks into Nineveh, and as he's walking through, he sees the way these people live. He sees their lifestyle. It's godless, filthy, evil, wicked people. I see now why God has called me here to preach against them, and he starts to judge them against their works. See, in the fish, he says it's all about grace, and he starts to judge people according to their works. That's our default pattern. We expect the God, we expect God to give us what we want. And then we expect God to punish people who hurt us, 
punish people who are unjust. And we want to say, we want to say, we want to walk up to them and say, 40 days in your life will be overturned. You deserve to pay the price. It's because we're judging people based on their merits, based on their record. We do that all the time. I mean, if you go to work and for every, you know, work, all the people at work are judged according to a bell curve, generally speaking, right? There are people who are super exceptional, people who probably are, you know, partially exceptional, partially acceptable. And you have a bulk of people right there in the middle who are judged and given like, hey, you meet expectations. And so your bonuses are usually kind of, you know, uh, calculated against that bell curve, right? Usually, depending on where you sit, and you may not know where you sit, but when you're sitting at your desk and you're looking at your right and your left, you're basically judging people according to their works. Because at the end of the day, we're all competing for attention. We're either competing with our boss for attention. It starts when a child, you're competing, for, you're competing for your parents' attention, right? You're competing for, you're trying to, why, do we, why are we so obsessed with the way we look in our society today? Because we're competing for attention. It's a cosmic thing. It's ultimately we want to be able to look to God and say, I am known. I am valuable. I am beautiful. I, want, I have worth. We're competing for the attention of God. That's what we're doing. And, and so uh, we, want to, we judge people according to their merits across the board. It may not even be a moral thing. It could be just a, a competency. And so that's our natural, that's our default path. And it messes us up. You're, you're fueled by anxiety. You're fueled by pride. You're fueled by anger because the injustice that you see is really based on people who, who don't deserve getting things that you feel like you deserve, right? Or you getting certain things that are negative that other people deserve. You're going to question the justice of God in every one of those situations when you flare up and throw your fist up at him and also the love of God. Where is God? Does he see me? Does he hear me? Am I valuable? Am I worthwhile? Am I worth it? But Jonah, who probably lived his life like this pretty much all his life, he must have been healed. And this book is the proof that he must have been healed. What's God asking at the end? He says this, look, Jonah, I asked you the first time and you ran away. And so you got the fish. I asked you the second time and you ran around just judging people. So angry. I'm asking a third time. Will you take on my burden? Will you take on my heart for the city? Now, how do you know that Jonah got it? Because think about this. How do you know that Jonah got it? The book ends open-ended. We don't really know what Jonah's response is. But who's the hero of the story? It's definitely not Jonah. Yet how do we know about all this? How do we know about Jonah's call and Jonah's rebellion, his disobedience? How do you know about the boat or the storm? How do you know about the fish and the prayer that he prayed in the fish? How do you know about what he preached and the conversation that he had with God east of the city? It was just him and God. How did you know? How do we know about anything? How do you know that Jonah is a racist? How do you know that Jonah was foolish? How do you know that Jonah is so vindictive? How do you know about this conversation? And the only possible way that you could have known is if Jonah told us. We don't really know who wrote this book. I think it's Jonah. It had to have been. It's either somebody Jonah told the whole story to and they wrote it, or Jonah wrote it himself. But no matter who wrote it, we know that Jonah is confessing, I'm an idiot. I'm foolish. I'm so gripped. And I was so foolish to look and challenge God in this. This is really a, a transformation story in and of itself. You see that? 
It's all here in the Bible. That's how you know that Jonah was healed. How are we healed by this? Because Jonah, he was gripped by the price that has to be paid. Somebody has to pay the price. Otherwise, God isn't just. If God lets one, I mean, I get, I get asked this question all the time. Why can't God just be a forgiving God? Why can't God just forgive, just let it go? If God were to let even one small thing go, evil wins. God is such an incredible accountant when it comes to our sinfulness. He makes sure that every sin is accounted for. What makes him ultimately just. And Jonah's banking on that. He says, you are not supposed to let them go. You promised you wouldn't let go. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is just. But where is the justice? You just let him go. And that, God, you have done an evil to me. You are doing an injustice. You are showing compassion. You Even at the hint of their repentance, and you have to understand that the Ninevites, they actually don't genuinely repent. Uh, in the language, when you see in chapter three, the language that's being used. They're not calling on God as, the, as Lord the way the Hebrews called, God, called on God as Lord. They don't have a personal relationship with God. So their repentance is really a fearful repentance. It's, a, it's kind of a temporary repentance just to kind of get God off their backs in a sense. And Jonah, he senses that. He knows that. These guys don't have a personal relationship with you. Even at the hint of repentance, you're just going to let them go? You're just going to walk away like that? He's so angry about this. It's because the real justice is coming, you see. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is looking at the city. He's looking over Jerusalem. And the text says, he wept over Jerusalem. And this is what it says. says, If you, even you, talking about Jerusalem, the whole city, if you, even you, he's crying. Whenever you see the Hebrew doublet there, right? He's super emotional. He's weeping. If you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. In other words, what he's saying is, in a short time, this city will be overturned. But he doesn't say it in anger. He's weeping. Jesus is the king. He has every reason to be angry. We went against the king. We betrayed the king. We chose to reject him. But Jesus Christ came and he taught and he preached. And instead of judging his people, which is what we deserve, he dwelled among his people. He lived with his people. Jonah grieved at the salvation of the wicked. Jesus Christ over and over wept at the judgment of the wicked. Jonah came to bring judgment. Jesus came to bear judgment. And knowing that and trusting that, well, to the degree that you know that and trust that, your anger will be cured. It's going to heal you of anger. Jesus Christ, before he was arrested, he's praying. He's praying for his betrayers. He's praying for the evil. He's praying for the wicked. And although he thought, he's thinking now, and think about Gethsemane. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he's just overwhelmed to the point of death. He's suffering as if he's already dying. He's thinking about the experience of the ultimate punishment, the wrath of God that he will endure for our sins. And it just completely overtook it. In other words, he was already coming undone. He was falling apart. And yet he obeyed fully. He did everything God asked. Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city. Jonah is standing outside the city waiting on the judgment. Jesus Christ is crucified outside the city. He's away from the city. He's away from God. Why? So that we can become near God. We can have access. 
And so on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have come undone because I have lost that one thing that is the center of my worth, the one thing that I hold of supreme value, the one relationship that has meant everything to me. It is my meaning, it is my hope, it is my purpose, it is my identity. It represents my value and my worth, my wealth and my meaning. And so basically he says, I've lost it. God has forsaken me. I've lost that. Why? So that you could see ultimate worth ultimate value. You would never have to compete for God's love. Jonah got the tree. Jonah got the vine, and it gave him relief from the heat. Jesus got the tree. He got the cross, and it gave him the heat of hell. Jonah got a scorching wind, and he says, just at the glimpse of the heat, he says, I'd rather die. Jesus Christ takes on the ultimate, the full heat of God's wrath, and he died. The we can have the shade of God's comfort and God's presence, God's love. Jonah says, I would rather die than see these evil people spared. Jesus Christ says, I would rather die so that the wicked would be spared. And so on the cross, people are mocking him and they're hurling insults at him. They're throwing things and spitting at him. What does he do? What does he say? Father, forgive them. That's grace. On the cross, you see the justice of God satisfied. Because it's everything that we deserved. Somebody had to pay. But on the cross, you see the love of God satisfied because Jesus Christ pays it in full. And so before you despair over God's silence, when things aren't going your way, especially in the face of evil or betrayal or hurt, before you express anger about the way God deals with evil on the outside, you know, he's so silent with evil on the outside, look first at how God dealt with our evil on the inside. And when you do, to the degree that you believe it, to the degree that you trust it, to the degree you gotta just preach that to yourself over and over and over, in the moment, don't wait till after. We all calm down after. Preach it in the moment. You will be assured of God's presence with us and he is gentle and he is patient and he is near and he's working on you and he's counseling you. And the more you trust that, the more you dialogue with him. That's what prayer is, you know? Prayer is dialogue. Jonah's praying to God. He's praying his anger. You can pray your anger. You can pray your fear. The more you're able to see what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross for our sin, it heals our anger. And what it does is, and inevitably, we're able to turn that love love towards others. We're able to forgive others. We're able to walk with others. People that you never would have thought you could walk with before. Now, I only have a few uh, minutes, so I'm gonna just close with one big application. The entire backdrop of this passage, this entire book, it revolves around Jonah's resistance to Nineveh. And the book ends with Jonah. Nineveh has 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left. Should I not be concerned about that great city? What does that tell you? God is agonizing for Nineveh. That's the word protagonist. Protagonist means I am agonizing for something, right? Then who's the antagonist? The one who's agonizing against is Jonah. Jonah's the church guy, but he's agonizing against being for these people. You see that? The city. This book, more than just being about Jonah's rebellion as a religious person who grew up in the church, it's really about God's love for that big, unbelieving, evil, sinful, wicked city. 
So in chapter one, God calls Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city. The Hebrew word for great there is strategic. In other words, God's saying, this is my strategy to bring the world back to me. Go to the big cities of the world and preach. Preach against their evil, but preach the gospel of grace. Why? Because cities, whatever drives culture, is going to drive society, and the city drives culture. The city drives culture. The, the biggest cities of the world, and now half the world's population has poured into the big cities of the world. And it's growing. Of course, in this recent season, we're seeing a depletion of that, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the big cities of the world drive culture, drive society. So if you have the thought of the city and it's driven and influenced by the gospel, imagine what it does in that society. Here's Jonah. In verse 10 of this passage, he's concerned about the vine. God says, you did nothing for that vine. You didn't care for it. You didn't tend to it. You didn't cultivate that vine. And yet, because it's doing something for you, you're happy about the vine. That's our view of the city. We tend to be happy about the city because of what it can provide for us. This is God's provision for me. That I can build myself here, right? God says, I am for the city and its people. You don't even care about that vine. You're just concerned for it because of what it did for you. But I love this city. This city does nothing for me. The people do nothing for me. They don't know their right from their left, but I am concerned. Should I not be concerned? Why? Because he loves people. He loves people. We get angry when there's lots of people. You hate traffic jams. You hate subways during rush hour. Take the orange line from Fern Rock all the way to the stadiums on the day of a game. You hate that. You can smell that smell uh, in the subway. That subway smell, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Stadiums are absolutely packed, long lines in front of Lorenzo's in the rain. God finds all of that beautiful. He finds all of that beautiful because it's packed with more image per God per square mile than any other place. One of my mentors, um, you know, he actually taught a class that Tim Keller took, I, I believe, in... Um, when he was at school here in Philadelphia. And uh, Tim Keller quotes him, but I, I've heard him say this to me so many times because of my own thoughts about my love for the city. And he says, you know, um, I'm not saying that God doesn't love the suburbs. I'm not saying that he doesn't love the countryside. But you see, there's lots of plants in the suburbs and there's lots of plants in the countryside, right? God is talking to Jonah, you care about this vine, right? But I'm looking at the city, Why? Because in the, I'm going to say this right, Dr. Crispin, Dr. Bill Crispin says, uh, in the city, there are, in the, in the suburbs, there are more plants than people. In the city, there are more people than plants. And because God loves people more than he loves plants, he loves the city more than he loves the suburbs. See that? That's very simple logic, but it's so rich there. We should all be concerned with the city. We should all be concerned with its people. You know, I hang with, uh, you know, you look at pastors and what they're saying online a lot of times, and it's disgusting to me a lot of times because they preach against, oh, these people are so liberal, you know? And in this political climate, you see these guys who are supposed to be drawing in people who are poor and marginalized, people who don't think like you, the mar marginalized in thought. Of course, when you're growing up in the church, that's your worldview, that's all you've got. Everybody else is evil. But if you really want to minister to the whole city, more than 99% of the people think differently than you. And so it's important for us to be concerned and to engage Jesus Christ dwelling with his people. Notice God says Nineveh has more than 120,000 people and many cattle as well. So I'm not even just talking about the people. Why does he mention livestock? 
it's so like a non sequitur. It's because what was the economy of those ancient times? It was the livestock. That means that God not only cares about the people, he cares about their economy. He cares about the shalom of the city. The holistic peace, educationally, safety, health-wise, culture, that means the way we treat people matters. The way we treat people who are different than us matters. The way you conduct yourself at work matters. The way you abide by the laws of the city matters. How you spend your money matters because God cares and is concerned about all of it. Speak up for the poor. Speak up for the marginalized. But rather than just making about your own views and your own interests and your own political desires, just speak up because you're serving God's kingdom until he returns with ultimate justice and ultimate love. And so you got to treat other people who you don't know Jesus, who may disagree with your values, disagree with your thoughts, treat them with grace. And so be concerned about worshiping God in the city, serving God in the city, loving God in the city, giving to the city. The gospel is your security. The gospel is your validation. You won't make the city, this earthly city, an end in itself. Most of us, we love the city because we get to express our gifts. We get to gain power and wealth. We want to build. It's a selfish thing. But if the gospel is your security and validation, you can use your gifts and your power and your wealth to love others and love this city. And we do that by looking to the greater Jonah who wept and died for wicked people like us, bore our judgment on the cross and embraced us. And that empowers us to embrace the city and serve those that God loves. Join us in that. That's why, uh, that's why Metro is planted here in the city. Not just a symbolic thing, the real thing. We serve more people in this community, a community we don't know. We have to learn. We have to engage. We have to bless. In order to bless them, you've got to engage with them. You don't just give, because then it looks like almost like an imperialistic thing. You have to engage and reside and dwell. And we do that by being planted here, by serving and walking with the people here, by engaging with partners all over the city. That's what we're doing. If you're interested, <clears throat> for those of you who are visiting, what a great opportunity to serve the city that we love, that we say we love. It's more than just about serving and loving our sports teams or restaurants, giving to the city and then we're paying tax. That's not loving the city. That's exploiting the city. To love it is to sacrifice, serve it, to weep over it, pray over it, walk in it, reach to it. Will you join us in that? Let's pray.